Well, James chapter 5, verses 7 to 13, we're coming to the end of the book of James, this sermon of his. Hear now the word of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Father, we ask now and do pray now that you would teach us from your word, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, some of you may know the history of the Battle of Waterloo. It's said that it marks the end of Napoleon's military career. Uh, The British were in a precarious position with really no chance of winging against Napoleon's massive French army. However, the commander of the British army, the Duke of Wellington, had a plan. He simply held his ground. This was his plan, get bombarded all day and wait for the Prussians. And he called upon his troops to remain firm until the Prussians arrived. Well, the Prussians were delayed, and things weren't looking that good for the British. Uh, The French artillery mowed down entire ranks of their opponents, but the chasms were instantly filled, and not a foot of ground was lost. And Napoleon said, what brave troops. It's a pity to destroy them, but I shall defeat them at the last. And defeat did seem inevitable. It it was until the Prussians actually arrived. Uh, They wouldn't have won. And they actually defeated Napoleon. Well, Legan Duncan is the one who tells this story. He said it was the only battle in the history of the military warfare in the 19th century that was lost at 5 o'clock and won at 7 o'clock on the same day by the same side. The plan worked. Stand firm was the war cry. Persevere through the battle. Be patient until the powerful allies arrive. Well, Duncan tells that story, of course, because it's the battle cry of the Duke of Wellington there in that story. It's the same cry James mentions in our passage. He says, stand firm. Persevere through the battle. Be patient until the coming of our Lord. The world will attack, the flesh will attack, the devil will attack, all hope will times will seem lost, the battle may seem overwhelming, but stand firm. Be patient, therefore, my brothers, until the coming of our commander, until the coming of the Lord, says verse 7, and the coming of our Savior. Be patient until the Lord of hosts, as he's called in verse 4, the commander of the Lord's army arrives, and he secures the victory. 
He's saying this, look, live your life, even in the midst of this persecution, live your life in light of the promised second coming of Jesus. Three times in our passage, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9, James points out this great hope in the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, This doctrine of the return of Christ is actually central teaching in the New Testament. It's mentioned in the New Testament 300 times. One in 13 verses from Matthew to Revelation speaks of Christ's second coming. And the New Testament uses three different words to to talk about or to describe the second coming of Christ. Uh, There's one, the most common word, uh, the one James uses is the ordinary word for someone's presence or arrival. It does have a more technical meaning. It was used at the invasion of a country by an army. And especially it was used at the visit of a king or a governor of a province of his empire. And so when that word is used of Jesus, it means his second coming is the final invasion of earth by heaven. It means the arrival of the king to receive the final submission and adoration of his subjects. And so that is the meaning of the first word, as the one James uses. But there are two other words. Um, in reference to the second coming, it's found in te- second, excuse me, Titus 2.13 is an example of the second word. It's the ordinary Greek word of the appearance of the gods to, be, uh, to the worshiper. And so what it is, is it's, when it's used of Jesus, it means his second coming is God appearing to his people. And then the third word, that's found in 1 Peter It has the meaning of laying bare or unveiling. And so when it's used of Jesus' second coming, it is the unveiling of the power and glory of God upon men and women. And so three words. And when you put them all together, you get these series of pictures. One writer says the second coming of Christ is the arrival of the king. It's God appearing to his people and mounting his eternal throne. It it is God directing upon the world the full blaze of heavenly glory. That is the focal point, beloved. That is the goal for which we are aiming, the full invasion of heaven upon earth, the arrival of the conquering king upon his throne, the appearing of God and the power and the glory of God made visible for all to see. See, the doctrine of the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, is of the utmost importance if we're going to live the Christian life faithfully. It's central. And yet at times, it seems that all we're concerned about when it comes to the end of times is, well, are you pre-trib or are you post-trib or are you mid-trib or are you no-trib? You know, is the, is the millennium literal or is it symbolic? We're busy playing pin the tail on the Antichrist when we we should be establishing in our hearts and minds the truth and the reality that Jesus Christ, our King, Jesus Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is coming again. He will arrive with his angels and separate the wheat from the chaff, the lambs from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. Now, those other issues are important. We, we had a conference on them, and, and, and we shared our points of view. They're worthy of our study, and they're worthy of our debate, but they must never take preeminence over the bare fact that Christ is returning. 
James tells us what, we'll, what we really need to know. Verse 7, the, the Lord is coming. Verse 8, that His coming is near. And verse 9, that He stands at the door and in any moment He may cross the threshold. And so James says, brothers. Notice that he says, brothers, over and over. Brothers, verse 7. Brothers, verse 9. Brothers, verse 10. Brothers, verse 12. If you remember the context, you see why that's significant. In the first six verses of chapter 5, James is rebuking who? He's rebuking the wicked rich, uh, those who abuse the poor. He was addressing the wicked. No mention of brothers there. But in verses 7 to 11, he now shifts his focus. And from those who are doing the persecuting to those who are being persecuted is his focus. From condemning the wicked faithless to comforting the righteous faithful. And, and when it comes to the return of Christ, it, it has an effect on both groups. For the wicked, the return of the Lord of hosts is a time of what? What do we see? A time of howling, a time of wailing, a kind of, a a time of condemnation, a time of judgment. But for the righteous who endure, those who are patient, it's a time of comfort, a time of joyful hope, a time of approval, and a time of reward. You see, this contrast gives us our first lesson uh, concerning the coming of Christ. For you, for me, either it's a time for joy or a time for judgment. It's either a time for comfort or or a time for condemnation. It's a time that we long for or a time that we lament. And so, if Christ returns today at this very moment, will it be joy or judgment for you? Which will it be? Will you be invited into heaven's kingdom or cast into eternal hell? I want you to notice something, that there's no middle ground. Indecision, uh, just simply denying that this isn't true, is a decision for hell. And you will find out someday when Christ returns that it is true. And so if you haven't personally addressed the first coming of Christ, the time when He came in His humility, a time where He lived a perfect life on our behalf so He could give us His righteousness, a time when He died on the cross for our sins so we can impute to Him our sins, a time when He rose again for our justification that we could be declared righteous in God's sight and forgiven of our sin, and and also receive at that moment the promise that someday He will return for us and we too will resurrect. If you haven't embraced by faith that first coming of the suffering Savior, Let me say to you, with all the passion I can and and compassion, you will dread the second coming of Christ. You will dread it if you don't embrace why he came the first time. But if you are a brother and sister in Christ, if you are a, a, a believer, it's a day we long for. It's a day to embrace. James says you need to fix your attention on that day. He's saying, look, you need to live a life that is looking forward to that event. Not not looking forward to the day you retire. 
Nothing wrong with that, I guess. But not looking forward to the day you can have financial independence. Nothing wrong with that either. Not even looking to the day that you will die. But looking beyond that to the day that Christ returns, which may be before or after you die. And so what James is saying is, brothers, those of you who have been oppressed, those of you that have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, by the wicked rich, by those who do not believe, live in light of the coming of Christ. All of life is to be lived in light of that one event, patiently waiting for the Lord's return. Patiently waiting, says verse 7. It is like the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. The word uh, waits in verse 7 means eager anticipation. The farmer eagerly anticipates the the fruit of his labors, the precious fruit. But until it arrives, he has to be patient. And the Greek word for patient in verse 7 is not the same as the Greek word James used earlier for endurance. Here we're talking about enduring difficult people. Earlier it was enduring difficult circumstances. Here it's, it's difficult people. People like who? Well, the wicked rich, those who oppress us, from verses 1 to 6. One commentator explains a long protracted restraint of the soul from yielding to passion, particularly anger towards others. We're to be patient. The farmer is to be patient until the early or late rains, we're told. This is the duration he had to wait. The early rains arrived in October or November, the late rains in March and April. And in between those times, he had to wait patiently through the entire growing season. And see, the analogy is the same for us as believers. Just as the farmer eagerly anticipates his crop, and yet, and yet he has to wait patiently for the entire growing season for its arrival, so James says in verse 8, you also be patient. What does he mean? You must eagerly anticipate Christ's return, believer, and yet patiently endure difficult people during your growing season. That's what he's getting across. This was true of the prophets who James says to look to as an example in verse 10. They suffered as they patiently spoke in the name of the Lord. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, it, we're, we're given a description of this. We read there, They suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Yet, through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. The prophets of old, the ones that we read about in our Bible, suffered persecution for their faith. They, but they, what did they do in the midst of that persecution? They faithfully and patiently endured it. And so we're prepared to meet the Lord whenever He chose to bring them home. And they went through it all knowing that He was 
going to return for them or provide for them. And there are example. Those are the two main themes of the passage. Be prepared for the Lord's return and be patient while you wait. And, and what James does is he kind of weaves the two themes together throughout verses 7 to 12. Uh, but that is not all he calls upon us to do. What James does now is he kind of lays out for us in more detail what this patience looks like. He, he kind of teases it out a little bit. He teaches us that a person who is patient must also be, and there's going to be five Ps here, uh, and I don't have the writer's name that I took these from down, but I want to give credit where credit is due. It was one of them. <laughs> he, they said be persistent. That's the first one. Be positive. Be promise-focused. Be plain-spoken. And be praying. Persistent, positive, Promise-focused, plain-spoken, and praying. And they're, they're going to kind of serve as the points we'll be looking at from this moment on. Well, first, a, a person who is patient must also be persistent. Look at verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Uh, the word establish means Strengthen steadfastly set. It, it means to make firm, render constant, fix your heart. It means determination, uh, steely resolution. It means persistence. And, and all this is to be directed toward our heart. What James is doing is he's warning us here against the sin he has addressed over and over and over in this letter, the fact that we, we can sometimes be inconsistent, double-minded, our hearts must be fixed on the harvest, fixed on the return of Christ. And so there's no room for double-mindedness. And he's saying beware of that. In contrast, the wicked rich in verses 5, James says, their hearts were not persistent. Remember Jesus. Nothing stopped Jesus in his resolve to go, his resolve to, go to Jerusalem. He, he, he set his heart. He set his mind on it. Even the cross that he was about to endure didn't stop him. And so we should, it shouldn't keep us from the fact that we may have to suffer, but we keep going, we persevere, we're persistent. Not even the trials we face should stop us. We must be persistent if nothing stopped our Savior. Second, a person who is patient must also be positive. Next time I'm going to have to find something other than peas to keep saying. <laughs> Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. James is uh, uh, perceptive. What he's doing is he, he, he knows the pressures that lead to the need for patience can cause tension. And, and uh, when others persecute us, when we're mocked, when we're under stress from trials, from tribulations, we're likely to vent our frustrations at those who are closest to us. Uh, we speak harshly against family and friends when we're under pressure. And so our frustrated heart expresses itself with the tongue, with grumbling. And James says, look, don't do it. Don't give in so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's saying, look, the, the judge may walk in at any moment. And when he walks in, don't let him catch you flying at the mouth, just cursing your brother and sister in Christ. 
And so all these trials you're enduring uh, shouldn't cause you to mistreat your brothers and sisters. What it should do, which leads to the third point, a person who is patient must be promise-focused. That's where your focus should be. Look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those who blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Why, why, why can we endure trials with patience? Because first, there's a promise of blessing for those who remain steadfast. We considered blessed those who remain steadfast, says James. These are an echo of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, what he's saying is, look, your, your trials are not a cause of grumbling. They are a cause of rejoicing and, and gladness. And, 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 and they will be if you can remain focused on the promise. You're promised a reward. And that's first. Second, there's a second promise here. We can endure trials because there's a purpose for our trials. He says in verse 11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. What does Paul say in Romans 8? For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to what? His purpose. We're, we're promised that all our trials, uh, all the ones we go through for His namesake will work together for our good. That's a promise. And there's a third promise. We can endure trials because of the God whose sovereign hand brought the trial in the first place. This God who's sovereign over everything is also compassionate and merciful. James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so, look, he's saying, don't let your circumstances, what you're going through, shape your thinking. Are, are you suffering? Are you in the midst of suffering? Do you have a, a, a migraine headache? <laughs> well, then know that God is compassionate. Are you facing this heavy burden and it's weighing you down on your shoulders? Well, know that God is merciful, he's saying. And when you think that you just can't endure any longer, think of Job. Consider Job, he says. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You ever read the story of Job? He lost everything. He, 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 he had boils all over his body. He lost his children. He lost his welfare. His wife cursed him. He just had nothing. And he struggled. Sometimes I think we present Job as a guy that just said, ah, it's okay. But he does say, even though he struggled, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And God sustained him. And, and, and God is merciful when you, when you persevere through this. Like Job, God is compassionate. He knew God's compassion. God has a purpose. And therefore, we can be patient. In fact, you can even go further and you can rejoice in the midst of suffering because you will be blessed by God. At the end of the book of Job, we read, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And that's just as true of us, spiritually speaking. 
If you're going through a, a major trial where you've lost everything, there's no guarantee in this world you'll gain it back. But we will be blessed more in the end and throughout eternity after Christ returns. More than we've ever been blessed on this earth. It won't even compare. And so, you need to focus on the promises of God. Well, another, a person who is patient must be plain spoken. Verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you will not fall under condemnation. This is another echo of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Jesus said, do not break your oath, but keep the oath you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven or by God's throne or by the earth for its footstool or by Jerusalem for the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make a hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. See, at the time of Jesus and James, the Jews would use oaths to get around a commitment rather than reinforce it. And James, like Jesus, is attacking that kind of usage. But why? I mean, why now? What's that have to do with anything? Well, I think he realizes it's another way we, when, we're, when we're feeling pressure, when there's this sense that we have these burdens on us, that we could lash out, that's true, but we also start, commit, start making quick, rash promises. James is saying, look, in the Christian life, patience is not manifest by using grand verbal promises. It's, 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 it's recognized by plain speech that just follows through with what it says. Letting your yes be yes, your no be no. Legan Duncan says, Our patient endurance will be shown not through grandiose verbal commitments, but in our endurance under trial. The point is this. It's better to be genuine than dramatic. It's better to, be, to mean what you're going to say and then fulfill it than have these unrealistic vows hanging over your shoulders that you know you can't fulfill. To say yes and mean it, and to say no and mean it. It's a matter of integrity of heart. Again, it's another display that you're not double-minded facing both ways. All our words are to be true. We're to be open and honest even in the face of persecution. One bumper sticker said it this way, speak the truth and let God take care of the details. Not bad. It's not everything, but it's not bad. And so we should follow the example of the prophets who did what? They spoke plainly the oracles of God. Their yes was yes and their no was no in the midst of persecution. And so, fifth, now, be praying. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. This is the key thing to do when oppressed, when the burdens are heavy. It's exactly what those who were being oppressed in James' day did. Remember back in verse 4, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. They were being oppressed. And, 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 and what they did is they lifted up their cries to God. We must not grumble, he says. We must not swear. We must not seek to retaliate against wrongdoers or simply grin and bear it. Rather... When we have these burdens, individually and collectively, we're to turn to God and seek His release and deliverance. And that's no small thing. 
The true story is told of an Iranian pastor in 1990 who was, whose endurance and patience and perseverance were running out. Uh, the pastor prayed, I cannot take any more of this questioning. He called into questioning all the time. Please release me from this. He'd been in and out of prison, and every two weeks, the secret police would take him and interrogate him. And, and it was always the same questions over and over, and they would accuse him of, of spying for the West. Well, the next morning, the pastor was again called to go speak to the secret police, and this time he asked his church members to pray that he wouldn't have to endure this anymore. Uh, I see you are here, said the officer, taking him into the questioning room. And before the questions began and the tape recorder was hit, the, the, the tape exploded. And flames came out of it, and it was obvious it would not work again. It was ruined, whatever reason. Uh, and, and the person interrogating him, the guard said, what are you doing? Why? He said that because he saw a slight smile on the pastor's face. I'm praying for you, the pastor answered. You are not fighting against me. You're fighting against God. You cannot win against him. Now, go home, the officer yelled, and the pastor quickly left. Well, he ran into the house and found at that moment when he ran into the door, three ladies from the church together with his wife joined in hands praying for him that he wouldn't be questioned, that he would be protected from the interrogation, and he was. It's an example. It's not always going to turn out that way. Uh, but that's the power of prayer, and it's not because of prayer that it's powerful. It's because the God that we pray to is powerful. Here, I'll close with this. If you, if you are facing a trial and maybe your, your patience is running thin, then be praying. Be praying. The hymn writer said, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And James here tells us he's the Lord of compassion. He's the Lord of mercy. And he's the Lord of hosts. And so this is the sum and the substance of the Christian life. It, 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 it's simple. Like the prophets, you will be persecuted. Like Job, you will indeed suffer. And like the farmer, you must wait, eagerly wait for the Lord's return. But in the interim, be patient. In Christ's strength, endure the attacks. Be persistent in Christ's strength. Establish your heart. Be positive. Do not grumble in the Spirit, with the Spirit's help. Be promise-focused. Why? Because the Lord has a purpose, and He's compassionate and merciful, and He will indeed bless you. It's a promise. And so let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be plain-spoken and be praying. Pray for spiritual growth like the farmer. Pray for persistence like the prophets. Pray for your enemies and pray. Pray, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for the patience of Job, for the per perseverance of the prophets, that we would remain steadfast. And that we know, Lord, that we, 
left to ourselves, would grumble, we'd complain, we'd lash out, we'd make rash vows, we would do all these things. So we ask that you would pour your spirit upon us and that we would have the strength that comes from Christ alone. Amen.